A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Charlene Goff, our retail banking correspondent, and Daniel Schaefer, our investment banking correspondent. We'll be talking about pay. The VEX topic comes up again at both RBS and Barclays. Secondly, Deutsche Bank, where capital is once again on the menu. And finally, the Cooperative Bank, the UK Ethical Bank, where analysis is starting to filter out of what exactly went wrong. First, though, that vexed topic of pay. Charlene, RBS was in the news on Friday because the government stepped in and blocked bonuses at twice the level of salary. It's a a complicated issue related to EU rules, but uh, what did you make of it? It was quite an interesting move and quite unexpected, actually, because I think it's been coming for a while. There was a a sense that this was going to be a very awkward situation for the government as by far the largest shareholder in RBS with an 81% stake. Essentially, it was up to the government whether to allow the bank to follow many other European banks in in requesting approval from shareholders to pay its bankers double their fixed salary rather than the one-time salary that's sort of the basic level set by a new uh, European Union cap. And because the government is the biggest shareholder, it effectively has a yay or nay say on, on whether this happens or not. And on Friday they said nay. Yeah, they did. Through the means of UKFI, which is the body that manages these stakes, said it would vote against the move if RBS put it to shareholders, which prompted RBS to say, well, we won't be putting it to shareholders then. And this basically isolates RBS from all other UK and European banks, which we expect to get this approval over the next few weeks and months. Barclays was the first to do so last week. So that prompted all sorts of warnings from RBS that, you know, this would further damage their competitive position in the market could trigger an exodus of talent, sort of all the old, slightly cliched arguments that we've heard for a long time over pay. But it it certainly once and for all singles RBS out. And one consultant I spoke to on Friday said, you know, this puts a very clear sign above the bank saying it cannot pay normally. And that actually could trigger fears among existing staff or employees elsewhere who were thinking of coming to RBS that if it's been hit this hard on this issue, you know, why not other issues as well? You know, it's a very clear message that the government is really hitting pay hard at RBS. Now, that obviously looks to be counter to the interests of the government as a shareholder in the bank because the share price is going to... I mean, it wasn't hit that hard on Friday, but it's yet another reason why the share price will fail to recover, I suspect, over the uh, the next few months. Why did George Osborne do this, especially given that it seems to run counter to his legal challenge to the whole EU pay cap that's resting in Brussels at the moment? Well, he was pretty much forced into a corner and put in a very difficult situation. So whatever he'd done, he was going to come in for criticism. There was no escaping it. But 
basically we we heard that Nick Clegg had made it very clear that you know he wouldn't support the government unless they voted against this so there was potential friction in the coalition it was also opening up to labor you know it was giving them real easy ammunition to really make a big political story of this you know labor had already made clear a few months ago that it thought the government should not allow RBS to to maximize the bonuses and would make it really awkward for the chancellor but you're right it it makes <laughs> as i think labor said he's in a terrible muddle now because on one hand he's trying to challenge this cap and on the other hand he's enforcing it in its strictest sense so yet his legal challenge looks undermined his position as a shareholder in the bank is sort of awkward and he's also overruled UKFI so there's all fresh noises now over whether you know UKFI should be disbanded whether it has any any role so it is really a a very uh, awkward position. It's not just at RBS though that we've had pay news over the past few days Barclays was also very much in the news, Daniel. You were at the uh, annual general meeting of shareholders in the middle of last week where it was unusually aggressive rhetoric from some of their shareholders. Yes, indeed, there was. Actually, Barclays became the first bank to actually get approval for the one to two cap on bonuses. So that topic wasn't contentious. But some other topics were specifically the fact that management has opted to increase the bonus pool last year by 10%, despite a drop in profits by a third. And so that was really that topic was dominating the agenda at the AGM. And there was quite a sizable protest vote in a it's a non-binding vote on the remuneration report for last year where investors said you shouldn't have increased the bonus pool. So 34% of investors failed to back the remuneration report, which really is quite a slap in the face for the management and the board. It looks quite embarrassing, I guess. But given that it was a non-binding and B got through anyway, does it matter? They can't simply ignore it. I don't think it has got drastic consequences immediately, but it is, from an investor perspective, I guess there are two elements for it. One is it's been seen as a warning shot to management, i.e. if they repeat that this year, then they could opt in future to become more aggressive in their voting. And then, you know, they could move, although that will only be in three years time, but they could then uh, fail to back the the remuneration policy, which is a binding vote actually in future. So it does have consequences in that it constrains their ability to act in the future and then they will need to react to it. But there's also a second more political element to it in that investors I think we're quite keen to express some dissatisfaction and to show to the government as well that they're using their their voting powers over pay, given that Vince Cable, the business secretary, has already threatened that if they don't use these powers and don't do more to curb pay, then he will pass further legislation and then he will further curb the ability of banks to to increase pay. But also he threatened to force investors to make public how they have voted on such issues. I guess taken together, one thing you can say about these two news stories is that it's probably playing into the hands of US investment banks because these are the two UK banks that do still have big-ish investment banking operations globally and they've clearly been uh, knocked back a little by this news. We'll see more when Barclays reports its results later this week. 
not sounding good for their Q1 uh, investment banking operations, I don't think. We should move on to Deutsche Bank, which was also in the news in the last few days because of the long rumoured capital shortfall that the bank has, according to many analysts. It seems investors are pressing the bank now, Daniel. Yeah, they are. We've heard from several top investors in the bank that they want Deutsche's management to actually press ahead with what they've always called the plan B, which is an outright capital increase. And the reason for this is Deutsche's share price has suffered a lot in the past year or so. They are valued much, much lower compared to their European peers, but also compared to other investment banks. And as we heard from inside the banks and from investors, the, the, the main reason everybody thinks the share price is valued where it is, is is really capital. Their core tier one ratio stood at 9.7% late last year, which is already again in the bottom quarter of the top investment banks. But the problem is also it's going to fall further during this year because they'll have to make some regulatory adjustments due to the European adoption of the Basel III rules, which will, some analysts reckon, could push their core tier one ratio down to 9.1 or 9.2%, which would be the worst among the big investment banks apart from RBS. I guess the other thing that's pertinent is that the increasing focus, not just on core tier one, the, the risk-weighted asset-based ratio, but also leverage, pure equity to assets ratio, by which measure Deutsche is also among the worst in the world. Yeah, now that's the other problem that Deutsche is facing. Almost exactly a year ago, they raised 3 billion euros in a rights issue to improve the core tier one ratio, Andrew Jane, the co-CEO, famously declared the bank's hunger march for capital to be over just to be one or two months later to be caught by the debate about leverage ratios, at which stage it became clear that leverage ratio is going to be another crucial measure for regulators to look at and that there is pressure for banks to comply with the rules much, much faster than previously expected. So Deutsche then again looked weakly capitalized. And now their plan A, I referred to plan B earlier, their plan A has always been to do this without the rights issue and to comply with the leverage ratio as well as the core tier one rules without capital raising. But now that has raised fears among investors that they are damaging their franchise, particularly in the investment banking trading business, by cutting back assets too fast and, and deleveraging too fast to comply with the leverage ratio rules. So do you think they will raise capital? And if so, when? And then if they do that, yeah. can Anshu Jain as co-chief executive survive, given that he's almost laid his uh, head on the line with the first capital raising a year ago? Well, I think they will raise capital, yes. Uh, and I think they will do it before November when the ECB will take over as the regulator and in October will present the results of its stress test and the asset quality review. I think there's a risk that they would be exposed then as being too weakly capitalized. So I think they'll do it before then, maybe in the summer. And I think Andrew Jane will have to present this in a very humble way <laughs> to please investors. And in a way, he will have to say, I got it wrong. You know, I shouldn't have argued against the capital increase all along, which he did. And I think then he'll stay on. Well, we'll hold you to that when it happens. A final quick word on the co-op 
Bank, which remains in the news in the UK. It seems to go from bad to worse, losses keep mounting. We had a couple of weeks ago news of, of deeper losses than expected. Back in the news over the past few days, and I guess will be further this week, Charlene, over the first elements of analysis coming out over what went wrong. Yeah, this week we should get the first big, probably fairly gruesome report into what happened in the sort of years building up to last year's exposure of a huge £1.5 billion capital hole in the Co-op Bank's balance sheet. And this review has been commissioned by Sir Christopher Kelly, the former civil servant. It was launched by the Co-op Group's former chief executive, Ewan Sutherland, late last year. He's now resigned. So it was internally commissioned, but is um, independently done. And it's really going to focus on the history. So, you know, what went so wrong at this supposedly small ethical lender that it can end up with that kind of calamitous shortfall and that ended up in a huge sweeping recapitalization of the bank late last year. So we're expecting it to focus heavily on the co-op's takeover of Britannia Building Society back in 2008. That seemingly is the deal where everything started to go very wrong. And that's already prompted a big debate with some of the former Britannia directors who are absolutely insistent that at the time of the takeover, Britannia was fine. But most other people, including regulators, MPs, do lay a lot of blame on that deal. Britannia had a huge exposure to commercial real estate just as values were plummeting. But it's not the sole cause by any means. I mean, there's just years of neglect and mismanagement of the co-op bank itself. The former team there were very ambitious, wanted to expand rapidly through acquisition. They didn't have the governance structure in place to make decent decisions. That's expected to be another big factor in the report, sort of woeful governance at the bank and the group. So it should be a very interesting read and this will really pave the way for a number of other reviews that we've got coming up into the co-op bank and its parent group over the next year or so. And who does this matter to? Obviously, it's uh, an important way of the co-op itself coming to terms with what went wrong and, and maybe learning for the future. But does it matter more broadly? The Kelly report is not expected to be able to make any key recommendations or enforcements that will all be done by the regulator, which is also looking into this and has launched sort of formal enforcement action. That's going to take a lot longer, but it could sort of lay the ground for that. We're expecting it to name key individuals, Neville Richardson, for example, Barry Tootle, the former chief execs of the co-op bank, as well as Peter Marks, a former group CEO. So to give a sign of who was responsible at an individual level and they could potentially face consequences further down the line. But really, as you say, it was commissioned as a sort of, we need to learn the lessons from this. We need to ensure this doesn't happen again. We need to improve our governance. Now, the bank has actually done a lot more on that front than the overall group has. It's overhauled its board. It's gotten rid of lots of the sort of co-op members that were on its board, brought in new independent non-executives. So it's there. But I think it's a chance for the management just to say, okay, you know, this is what happened. We've learned from the mistakes. We have to really ensure that, you know, this doesn't want happen again. The first of uh, many lines that it needs to draw under that whole uh, period, I think. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Charlene and Daniel and thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Katie Carney. We'll be away next week for Bank Holiday Monday, back in two weeks. Until then, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., 
Corrientes experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.